Hello, you're listening to The Send with me, Louise Beale. This is the podcast that talks to TV correspondents about what happened when they covered some of the world's biggest news stories and how they performed under pressure. In this episode, we're talking to correspondent Julian Drucker about covering one of the most dramatic trials of the 21st century. Oscar Pistorius was an iconic athlete, not just in South Africa, but worldwide. His famous blades making him a Paralympic and Olympic superstar. But on Valentine's Day 2013, he shot and killed his girlfriend, Reva Steenkamp, at his home in Pretoria. The following year, he stood trial and it was broadcast live to an audience of millions. Julian was sent to South Africa to cover the trial for Channel 5 News and he joins me now. Julian, welcome along to The Send. Now, as I've mentioned already in the introduction, Oscar Pistorius was, you know, he was a global household name. He was one of, if not the most famous man in South Africa at the time, apart from Nelson Mandela. What was it like when you arrived in South Africa and you got off the plane? Was it all anyone was talking about? It was. I mean, it had been a huge story uh, for the whole year before this trial started because he'd shot Reva Steenkamp on Valentine's Day 2013. This trial started uh, a year and a month later in 2014. As you said, you know, this dominated TV channels. They'd never sort of done court coverage like that in South Africa. They had to get special permission. Um, there was a ruling so that they could have this 24-hour channel. I mean, we'd obviously seen that in America with OJ and the Michael Jackson trial. Um, but this was a a new thing for South Africa, a huge thing for them. Everybody seemed to have their own theories um, in that year before the trial started. And as you say, huge star as well. I'd actually seen Oscar Pistorius at the Paralympics in London in uh, 2012. He'd obviously been in the Olympics as well, but you know, he was hugely known, obviously, for being a trailblazer in sport, being the first uh, Paralympian to appear in the Olympics. Um, so already he had made history but yeah, a, a massive moment, and as you say, one of the trials of the of the twenty first century. So tell me, on day one of the trial, obviously you're used to trials in the UK. You know, we know as journalists where you go, where you sit in the press gallery. Obviously, if it's a very big trial, sometimes there's a, a separate room, isn't there, for journalists? What about this one? Well, the rules are different because you you know we could film the defendant inside the court building in the corridors, so it was almost you know, akin to a film premiere almost with him walking through all the all the scrums of cameras and everything. There was uh, limited filming allowed in the court for us during some of the breaks. We could do our sort of pieces to camera and that sort of thing. But obviously the, the actual thing was, was televised with multi-cameras in there. So if you were sitting in the main court, you yourself as a reporter would appear on on TV as well. So, you know, this was, as well as a legal event, this was a a TV event as well, which perhaps took away from, you know, some of the feelings inside inside that court. Obviously, relatives of Reva Steenkamp were there, her parents were there, and perhaps some of the coverage, some of the journalists perhaps got swept up in the sort of, the excitement of it, and perhaps forgot that this was a, you know, a human story at, at the heart of it. And on the first day of the trial, and you turned up at the courthouse, talk me through what happened. Do you get there, you know, six hours early? Do you have a place reserved in court? How does it work? This is like it is in, a, you know, covering court cases in Britain, or it used to be before 
before COVID. But journalists, you know, it's like a competition to get seats in court. You know, if this was an Olympic event, you know, journalists would be very good at that. <laughs> um, there is this comradeship between, you know, reporters, but not really when it comes to seating in courts. So this this was something where, you know, you wanted to get there an hour or two beforehand to make sure, you know, you could see. Often the audio in courts is not very good, so that's a problem as well. You want to be near to the speakers. And for lots of, you know, the well-seasoned reporters who had been in this court before, they wanted to make sure that they were near to the defendant, basically to get themselves on, on TV, because they knew that they would be in the back of shot behind Oscar Pistorius. And did you get a seat? I did get a seat. I did get a seat. And these courts are bigger than... British courts um, on the whole. So, they, you know, but it was still packed and, and very difficult to, you know, actually sit down in there. Um, but I guess, you know, 50 or 60 people in there, obviously all eyes on Oscar Pistorius, his family very near to him, Reva Steenkamp's family, just a few seats down. So, you know, an incredibly intense sort of, moment for all of them and all sitting extremely close to each other as well tell me what was the atmosphere like and how did it make you feel it's always strange when you're covering a trial of someone who's a massive public figure but you can see almost their nervousness this is someone who's used to being photographed um, but you're aware that they're finding it quite difficult and certainly he was in these very narrow corridors in this courthouse in Pretoria um, yeah, you you could see his nervousness. You could see the the scale of of this trial on on his shoulders. I mean, it was a real media circus, and you know when you're at the world's biggest news story, you know you could see everybody is there. You know there was excitement, and um, but ultimately this you know this was a story about people and something that may or may not have gone wrong. Um, so I think the trick was to strip away you know, the fame element of the people involved and just, you know, to deal with it as a human tragedy, which is obviously what it was. Did you get caught up in the emotion at any point, you know, particularly seeing Reva Steenkamp's family? Really difficult um, to see them there because they were quite elderly and the evidence was so uh, graphic. There were certain days when there was videos and photos um, things got flashed up inadvertently oh, uh, in court because one of the court clerks um, pressed the wrong button. That also got shown on news channels around the world as well, so TV channels had to apologise. Um, so that was obviously really difficult yeah. for them. And on, I think, the start of the second week when the pathologist started giving evidence, this was when Oscar Pistorius as well started to find it really difficult. And I, th- I don't think this was televised, actually, and I was just looking back on YouTube um, and I think they paused proceedings on this particular day just because this evidence was so uh, graphic but this was the day when and this was reported obviously that Oscar Pistorius vomited in court and they had to keep adjourning every few minutes just because of the intensity of the of the evidence I mean in any trial I've ever covered that was probably the most sort of emotionally intense moment you know, to, to see that going on and to see her family, I mean, it's just everything in, in the same eye line was um, quite surreal. 
talking of her family, often in these trials, people think that, you know, the perpetrator gets more airtime than the victim. Was there a sense of that with Reva Steenkamp's family? You know, everyone was so busy talking about Oscar Pistorius. Did did you get that sense from them? She had a level of fame, Reva Steenkamp. She'd modelled in magazines and been on reality TV shows. But the problem with this trial and in lots of the coverage was that she was forgotten. I mean, there was a recent documentary on the BBC um, in the last six months in the, in the trailer for this programme, her name was never even mentioned, so the BBC had to apologise and, and recut this whole trailer. So it very much became about him, less so about her. Um, and in our coverage, it was always very important to reflect, you know, mm. as ever, you know, who the victim was. Did you speak to any of her family? Um, her parents at times, um, during the trial, we never spoke to them at the conclusion because they received payment to do interviews elsewhere. But her friends, yeah, we spoke to throughout the trial, um, but particularly at the end, and that, that was a feeling they had that it was all, particularly their unhappiness with the uh, verdict. They felt that um, she had been forgotten in all of this and it was, you know, everything was always branded. Obviously the Oscar Pistorius trial because it was it was him on trial. Sure. But they felt that she wasn't even a secondary character in, in this whole tragedy. What about... Oscar Pistorius, did you ever have a chance to speak to him? Uh, not during the trial, but afterwards, I ended up through another journalist. I mean, it wasn't that down to my contacts, but through another journalist, got to spend a few hours with him. Um, and this was only a day after he was he was cleared of murder in the September of 2014, yeah. but found guilty of uh, of her killing. So obviously his sentence the next month will be a lot lower so there was when, when I spoke to him he was much more relaxed I mean this was a a private event and yeah he was definitely relieved you know he would have a reduced prison sentence but yeah it was a surreal moment this was it was a week before the Scottish referendum right. in 2014 and this had come up on our phones because there were other, other journalists there if you remember the famous poll in the Sunday Times the week before that said that Scotland would vote for independence right so this was a huge story in britain so we were just talking about that and oscar pistorius joined in he had raced in scotland in falkirk so he was telling us about how much he loved scotland you know <laughs> giving his views on scottish independence i don't know if they're still the same now um <laughs> so that was surreal so he was he was talking about that i talked to him about the paralympics seeing him race and that um and you know yeah he expressed you know his feelings that he was relieved that the trial was over. The worst moments of it, he said, was you know the actual incident in 2013. Yeah. And that he just had to get through the sentencing the next month. I mean, so surreal for you. And also particularly because obviously any other court case we've covered, you don't really get to speak to the person who's been no, found guilty no. afterwards because they're usually in prison, I guess. What was that like? It was strange. And it, so I was, in, I, mean, I was in a car with him for about an hour before... <laughs> before this event so yeah it is strange just to hear about someone who's been a defendant and hear about obviously the process is different in South Africa but um just to hear what it's like being on trial I mean in this car journey he was just basically saying how boring the last year had been he said about you know he didn't have his phone because obviously investigators took that away I mean there was lots he wasn't saying and we weren't me and this other journalist weren't asking him 
particularly pertinent questions about the case. Yeah. But he was sort of talking about, because, you know, there's music on in the car and he was saying, you know, like classical music. He was talking about really how he'd spent that year up until the trial and he was talking about, you know, just sort of normal chats you would have. He was talking about things he'd watched on Discovery, you know, watched documentary about, the, was it the famous rugby team in the Andes? Was it where their plane yes. crashed and they had to resort yep. to eating each other and all that sort of stuff? So he was talking about, um, yeah, documentaries on Discovery, you know, just filling his time because he had spent a lot of time on Instagram and other social media yep. prior to the incident in 2013. And obviously overnight he had lost that side of his life and, you know, he had been waiting for this trial and for it to be over. And really this was one of the first moments where it was over. Do you feel that he had taken responsibility for what he'd done or do you think he... What were your thoughts? I mean, I just obviously they don't have a jury system in South Africa. They had the judge. As journalists, we don't really have views, but we re respect the view of the person who's given the verdict. I mean, I guess you know, talking to South Africans at the time, I guess they were surprised that it wasn't a murder verdict. You know, the day before we're talking when I spoke to him. Obviously, later on, it's been upgraded and, you know, he's in prison now and will be for several more years. I think the general feeling around the trial was that it was, um, you know, there was lots of detail in it. And for those who had their own sort of preconceived view, the trial probably didn't change anything. No. And it still splits people's views today, I guess. Tell me, when you were reporting on the trial, obviously, as we've already discussed, the world's media was there. Did you ever have to do live reports from outside the courthouse next to a million and other one journalists? Yes, yes. For, for days on end, yes. Yeah. I mean, it dominated the news every day. Even if nothing really happened in court on certain days, it would still be one of the main stories. And when you're outside reporting on this and the world's media are out there as well, how do you kind of keep calm and deliver what you want to say to camera without letting all of that distract you? It's probably harder when there are other journalists there yep. because cameramen will put journalists next to each other because they'll want the same shot of the court building or whatever. Not just court reporting, but it's the same in you know, Westminster or whatever. Um, so sometimes you're talking over each other, you know, yep. People watching at home, like, you know, my friends or family or whatever, will often say, you know, what, why why have you done it so that you're all, you know, I, I could hear you on ITV, even though you're obviously on Channel 5, because <laughs> you were speaking so loud. Everyone's talking over each other. Um, so that happens a lot, doesn't it? it does. So th those moments are harder, because it's just, you know, in it, not just in the job that we do, but just trying to concentrate while someone next to you is speaking very loudly, saying something extremely similar to what you're saying is, it can be difficult, but it's just about focusing, I guess, isn't it? Is that what you do? You just focus any other tips you can share of how you keep on the straight and narrow? It's just um, keeping it concise, isn't it? But, um, you know, having notes, you know, our editors and producers, you know, get nervous about any sort of legal reporting because one small error could be horrendous you could have you know 
you could have the attorney general involved. I mean, I've seen that happen, not not to me, thankfully, but places where I've worked in the past where there have been legal errors on air. So, you know, these these things get cascaded up extremely quickly if they go wrong. So, you know, it can be nerve-wracking, more so perhaps for people watching back at base rather than the actual reporter. But my tips would be, and again, this, is, this would work outside news as well, but, you know, just having notes, uh, being concise and being clear. Absolutely. Speaking of lining up next to all those reporters, I remember I covered, I was standing outside the hospital when Kate Middleton was first pregnant and we all discovered she was in hospital and I remember thinking I was working for Channel 5 and I was thinking I'm going to have to go first on the live because we're on air first and then all these other people will follow and I was right next door to Nicholas Witchell and he's (laughs) obviously a royal reporter and I thought oh no (laughs) I was more worried about what he thought I was saying than all the people watching Channel 5 is that does that ever happen to you where you think oh, I just wish they weren't listening and I could just focus on what I need to do. I would find it hard to report next to Nicholas Witchell, <laughs> I think. Um, yeah, you'd worry about, I mean, not getting details wrong, but you'd rather he went first. Absolutely. I think, wouldn't you? Definitely. But uh, yeah, other reporters just make the job harder. On any story, particularly a crime story, if you're somewhere where, you know, something's happening, you're hoping someone's relatives may speak to you, you know, when you get there and see other journalists there, I mean, it's just, journalists make it harder for other journalists, really. So the last person, paradoxically, that you want to see at a news story is a, is a journalist, <laughs> I find. Agreed. Puts extra pressure on. You've obviously, during your career, you've been sent all over the world to cover stories. How does a trial compare to some of those other things? So I know you've covered hurricanes in the US and um, the European migrant crisis, where obviously you're seeing human suffering as well as the kind of human suffering you saw in court, particularly from Reva Steenkamp's family. Is Is there a difference when it's in court? Does it feel different or more ordered? Or is it still just the breadth of humanity right in front of you? I mean, it is more ordered in court. But some of the most emotional moments I've covered have been in courts. I mean, not not partly this trial, but particularly in Britain, particularly when, and this has only been going on for a few years, but victim impact statements when they're actually read out by people. Sometimes the judge will surmise the comments mm. uh, written by people. But when people themselves read out comments, it can be really difficult. So I remember covering a trial in Liverpool of... A child who'd been killed by a hit-and-run driver and her mother read out a victim impact statement and obviously journalists are very sort of steely and not supposedly feeling emotion, but the whole press bench in tears Gosh. Um, as this mum read out this testament about how she'd lost her daughter and, you know, reading it to the person who'd, who'd driven into her. So, you know, those moments are really, really emotive. I think... Courts can be amazing for the sort of wide spectrum of humanity is just laid out bare, even in quite a clinical way, but that almost makes it more emotional. Have there been other stories that you've been on where, you know, where the emotion just is threatening to take over, I guess, from the job that you're doing? The migrant crisis of 2015, which went on for most of the year, didn't it? Um, 
you know, people talk about an emotional roller coaster, don't they? The cliche, but I mean, it really was in that, you know, people arriving. This was in uh, Lesbos, the Greek island. You'd see people arriving on boats, moments of joy for them um, to be there. You know, these were the lucky ones, really, to have uh, escaped from Syria and to be on shore. These were, and we tried to convey that in our coverage. It was, you know, these were really joyful moments for these people. Obviously, there were people dying at the time as well but you know for the ones who survived overwhelmingly and you know most of them did to to be on dry land was amazing for them but on the same trip in lesbos a few days later seeing a guy um i think it was two children and his wife had died that day so this oh. this boat had, had had sunk and then they'd come ashore in lesbos i think around 20 people had died um so we were on the island and then a, a charity pointed out this guy, spoke great English and amazingly wanted to be interviewed. And I'm always amazed that anybody really almost wants to go on TV, particularly in an emotional moment, but just sort of generally really, because, mm. you know, I can't imagine I would want to go on TV in these moments. But this guy just told us about his family had died. I mean, it was just heartbreaking to hear and it it was literally like three hours before I couldn't believe that not only what had happened to him but the fact that he could even sort of shape his thoughts yeah. um, but I often wonder what happened to him in, in the stages after that Do these stories stay with you sometimes? Do you think about the people that you've interviewed? Absolutely and you often think about um, there's lots of talk on TV about aftercare because there's been contributors on TV shows outside of news where, you know, things have gone wrong and, you know, they're on TV at the most vulnerable. This happens in news all the time, but it's, um, you know, we talk to people in that really emotional moment and then we're gone and you, you do wonder what happened next. I do try to keep in contact with particularly, you know, vulnerable people or stories who may follow up or just because, you know, you're concerned. Yeah about them and you know that our viewers would ask you know what happened to such and such but I often wonder what it must be like to you know appear on TV at this moment of which is often going to be tragic isn't it when we speak to yeah. them. Going back to South Africa and you've already mentioned how the fact that Oscar Pistorius's sentence was upgraded from manslaughter to to murder Given your experience of the trial, of seeing Reva Steenkamp's family and obviously meeting Oscar Pistorius, how do you think that upgrade would have affected both of them? Well, I think that upgrade pretty much meant his career was over. I mean, there was a sense that I think had he served that initial sentence of manslaughter, I can't remember what age he would have been at the end of it, but I think there was a feeling perhaps that people might have given him the benefit of the doubt. He could have perhaps been a sort of pundit on TV for various Olympics of the future. A murder conviction not only led to an extended sentence, but meant that there could be no comeback for him whatsoever. You know, the sort of disgrace was complete. Did it feel quite momentous to be there? It is always amazing as a journalist to cover, you know, the biggest story in the world on that particular day. Um, so, yeah, it was a real moment to be there. And people still ask me about, you know, the Oscar Pistorius trial now. And we've all covered lots of stories, but 
that is certainly one that cuts through and people you know people still remember when they've forgotten everything else so you know yeah an amazing moment you know one couldn't forget of the human tragedy there and you know this old couple who'd lost their daughter um but at the same time just you know a just remarkable moment where the you know the most famous person in this country is on trial and the whole world is is fascinated by what's going on in that in that courtroom is there one abiding memory that you have from your time in south africa covering this trial i think it was it was the rawness of this trial i've never seen you know such raw human emotion in a courtroom and it was just you know so elongated this went on for weeks and weeks and months you know they talk of a trial of the century it's probably one of the biggest two or three trials of this century but it is a trial that people will continue to debate the verdict you know long after Oscar Pistorius comes out of prison in in the next few years. I think you're right Julian Drucker thank you very much for talking to us here at The Send. If you enjoyed this episode of The Send we'd be really grateful if you could rate and review it or perhaps share it with a friend who might like it too. If you want to hear more episodes, then do subscribe. And if you're interested in presentation or media training courses, then please head to middletabletraining.com to find out more. Thank you. Thank you.